Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. Hey, Jeremy. Hi, Steve. So, as always, we are sitting, you know, a couple feet apart. Just good to have this conversation with you, buddy. And, you know, the topic for today is what we're calling the science of type 2 diabetes. And we actually did a podcast on the science of type 1 diabetes, which just so happens to be our most listened to podcast, actually. And we thought, well, gosh, we got to do one of these on type 2. And, you know, what do we mean, science of type 2? Why are we doing this topic? What we're really going to be talking about is, is kind of simple. Like, what is type 2 diabetes? What goes wrong from kind of a, a physiological standpoint? And we think this is important because if you're living with type 2, it can help to have some kind of basic understanding of what's going on in your body and maybe give you insight into how these medications are working or how you can combat the disease. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. You know, as we were preparing for this podcast, it, it reminded us how different the cause of type 1 diabetes is compared to type 2, completely different. We do share certain medications and devices now, but in reality, the, the science of type 2 is more complicated than type 1. You're the ultra expert in type 1, and maybe you say a few words about that. Well, yeah, I think, you know, when people say, what is type 1 diabetes, uh, you know, the disease is no fun, but to explain it is pretty easy. You got these cells that make insulin and your body, you know, destroys them, and so you need insulin. Type 2, you know, it takes about half an hour to actually explain what it is. And that's actually part of the problem, that people kind of have these vague misconceptions about sugar and how does that relate to diabetes. So we're going to jump into that. But before we do that, we were also just talking about, you know, we do have some experience in this, a lot actually, that obviously Steve founded Taking Control of, of Your Diabetes, but has had a whole career at the University of California, San Diego and the VA, and also now myself coming along doing this the last 10, 15 years or so. And a big part of what we do there is actually research and you know, uh, studying insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and, and what are medications we can use. And not only that, we have been very fortunate to go to these large national meetings uh, you know, um, in the country, outside of the country, everywhere, and meet other investigators working on this so, so we do have some background for sure on this topic. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's become our life actually, and uh, we 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 love the fact that we can interact with actual TCOID participants from around the country, and now that we're virtual around the world, and we have a very active blog. And please reach out and ask any questions that you like, and we'll get to it. So, just to heads up, this is a complicated topic. We're going to do the best we can to present it in understandable way. Absolutely. So let's jump in. So what is type 2 diabetes? And let me just reiterate that for fun, I Googled this question and you know, actually Googled what is the definition of type 2 diabetes? And you get all different kinds of things, that there really isn't like a uniform definition. So I went to the American Diabetes Association website and they say, quote, diabetes is a group of metabolic diseases that lead to high levels of blood glucose or hyperglycemia, which occur when the body does not make enough insulin or does not use insulin well. So what do you think about that definition? Well, I think I think that is true, but it is way too simplified mm -hmm. because we do know now uh, through the years we have discovered multiple other defects in type 2 diabetes, multiple. And what's nice about it is that the scientists have looked at each one of these defects separately and developed uh, therapies to address those issues. And that's why we'll get into it. Uh, there are many classes of medications that 
directly improve these different abnormalities. So right. it's it's complicated, but that's not a bad start. It, it's it's a place to start because the the hallmark of diabetes is really high blood sugar levels. And when you know the blood sugars are high for a period of time, that causes problems. It can damage damage the the blood vessels, and that's what leads to these eye problems and kidney problems, etc. So we, we focus on blood sugars. However, as we'll talk later in the in the, the podcast, that with some of these metabolic derangements that come with diabetes, it can lead to more heart disease, obesity, all these different things. So, okay, so your blood sugars are high, but we have to ask what causes that. And as you kind of alluded to in the beginning of the podcast, we don't really know the exact cause or causes of type 2 diabetes, but we know that a lot of things have to come together for type 2 diabetes to occur, if you will, starting with your genetics, what Uh, you're born with. So tell us about that, Steve. Well, the bottom line is it's always our parents' fault. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's amazing how strong this condition is passed along from generation to generation. And the statistics go like this. If, if you take 100 people with type 2 and you say, does it run in your family? 85% will say, yes, my father, my mother, my aunt. Even people say, yeah, my kids have type 2 diabetes. So it really runs strongly generation to generation. And we, we do know certain ethnic groups have a very high rate, African Americans, Latinos, Native American Indians, Pacific Islanders. So we don't even know why that occurs. And I think maybe that gets into the thrifty gene hypothesis. Maybe you can go there. Yeah, you know, I'll definitely talk about it. So first of all, you know, people say, okay, it's genetic. It's in my family. What's the gene? And it's not that simple either. There's multiple genes that we know are associated kind of loosely with type 2 diabetes. Levi's, Jordache, things like that. <laughs> and a lot of these genes have to do with things that kind of diminish insulin secretion. And some of them have to do with things that promote insulin resistance. Um, but we know it's kind of a conglomeration of things that, that come together that's passed along through you know, the generations. But it's not just this one gene. You have it or you don't. It's all these things that go together. And Yeah, and it, it doesn't pass through generations like a Mendelian type of, if you, if you ever took genetics in college, you know, where you know the, the mother passes it on. It's just, it's hit or miss, mm-hmm. but it hits more than it misses. So the thrifty gene hypothesis. So you might say, okay, why is this something that has persisted in the evolution of the human species? Why do we have genetics that are passed along that enable people to get high blood sugars, et cetera? And there's lots of ideas around this, but the kind of the prevailing one is what they call the thrifty gene hypothesis, that in the early days of humans, back when we were cavemen, it was actually to our advantage to be able to hold on to energy to pack away fat as, as storage, et cetera, for as long as possible. So if you were a caveman walking down, not the street, but the, the caveway, <laughs> they whatever. They have streets in yeah. the caveman, Dave, Jeremy. And you came you across... Get into your Tesla. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were walking around and you came across an apple tree. You know, you would eat all the apples you could because there's no, you know, you didn't know when the next time you would eat, whatever. And the, the people that did the best are people that could store fat and actually, you know, promote kind of some insulin resistance, et cetera. So there was an advantage that you could store that away for the winter, whatever, um, to kind of holding on to energy, holding on to fat, if you will. And that has potentially persisted in our society. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're super thin and you have a very good metabolism uh, and if you were a caveman and there was a famine, no mm-hmm. food around, you'd be the first one to pass away. 
So the, the, the folks with insulin resistance, a little bit of extra adiposity, they were able to procreate and uh, pass on the genes. And then what happened is in a very short period of time, we have changed from hunters and gatherers to people sitting at a desk mm-hmm. like you and I, uh, not exercising as much, eating food high in fat. And all of a sudden, this re- this defect that saved you a couple hundred years ago. A couple is hundred co- million years or <laughs> millions of years ago. Yeah, potentially. All right. No, all sorry. Right. It wasn't like, you know, I, 1950. I, didn't, it was like, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said a couple hundred years. Okay. But now it's the main cause of why we're seeing so much type 2, uh, not only in uh, Western societies, but all around the world. Yeah. So I think well said. All right. So your genes come together. There's this conglomerate of genes and something goes awry. And when we talk about the two main defects uh, that lead to type 2 diabetes, it's really these two things. And here they are. One, your uh, beta cells, your, your cells that make insulin, don't make enough insulin. And then two, the tissues in your body, your muscle and your fat are resistant to that insulin, meaning that the insulin that you do make isn't as effective. So you can see that that's a one-two punch. You don't make enough insulin, and the insulin that you do make doesn't work as well. Yeah, now, the way I've always described it, whether it's right or wrong, is the I, I always mention the insulin resistance first. So you develop this defect that doesn't allow your body, the tissues of the body, to utilize insulin. So as a compensatory mechanism, your brain tells the pancreas to secrete more insulin, more and more, and that works. You know, you can measure insulin levels in someone newly diagnosed with type 2. Blood sugars aren't that high. The insulin levels could be way higher than normal. And then over time, we talk about this phrase called beta cell exhaustion, pancreatic exhaustion, that your pancreas just can't keep up with this insulin resistance and it eventually fails. And then you become what we call uh, insulinopenic, or you just don't secrete enough insulin Mm -hmm. to keep the blood sugars normal. Hopefully that was clear enough. No, that's definitely clear. And people will argue back and forth all day long. What comes first? Insulin secretion deficits or insulin resistance, chicken or the egg. Um, Bottom line is they're both present. Um, And when we talk about insulin resistance, it's, it's kind of a technical word. And so talking about what that is, we'll talk about specifically insulin resistance, and then we'll talk about, you know, decreased secretion. Um, so insulin resistance, what it is, is that, so you have glucose in your, in your bloodstream, your blood sugar, you know, there's always glucose in your, your blood vessels and insulin is, is literally kind of the key that lets the glucose into your, your cells. And without that key, you know, the, the glucose stays in your bloodstream and that's what leads to high blood sugars. So when you have insulin resistance, you know, the insulin just simply isn't working to let glucose into the, to the cells. And that's why your blood sugar goes high. So when people say, okay, what causes this? Well, we don't really know, but we know it's very closely linked to weight, that the more people weigh in general, the more insulin resistance they have. And there's a lot of data now showing that it's not just you know the, the pounds on the scale, but the, the fat tissue itself uh, might be detrimental in the sense that it's pro-inflammatory. It can release what we call these inflammatory cytokines, which induce insulin resistance. So the more fat you have, more weight, but it's also secreting stuff that's not helpful. Yeah, let me add to that because it's a certain type of fat. We call this uh, intra-abdominal fat. The typical body habitus of someone with type 2 is kind of a, a lack of a better phrase, but understandable is the beer belly. Your arms and legs may not be that heavy. And this fat is 
uh, below the muscle that separates out all your internal organs from the outside, like your pancreas, your liver. And this is very special fat. We call it visceral fat, intra-abdominal fat. And that fat, as you just mentioned, has been associated with quote-unquote type 2 diabetes and the metabolic syndrome that we'll get into uh, that also is associated with, we don't know what came first, high blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol, and and having the uh, uh, propensity to develop mini clots, which can lead to strokes and heart attacks. So it is a complicated condition, and all of those can cause cardiovascular abnormalities. So, you know, to put a number to this, people say, well, what do you mean by insulin resistant? How resistant am I? So a lot of the research that, you know, we've done over the past, Steve and I, we do these these techniques called um, insulin clamps. And I don't have to go into the details of, of what it is. Um, but it's a way that we can specifically quantify how much glucose people can dispose, how, how sensitive are their tissues. And when we take people without diabetes and compare them to people with diabetes, people with diabetes, their insulin is about 20% or so as effective as somebody without diabetes. Another way of saying that is if it would take one unit of insulin to do something in a non-diabetic, it would take about you know five units of insulin in somebody with diabetes. So that insulin that they are making just isn't working as well. And we'll talk about this later, but you mentioned that insulin resistance also causes all kinds of other problems, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So main defect one, insulin resistance. It's associated with weight, you know, these pro-inflammatory things. That's not a great thing. And as you mentioned, uh, the next thing that comes is kind of a deficient insulin secretion where the pancreas is trying to keep up. You know, it's secreting as much insulin as it can, but it's it's working uphill kind of literally. And eventually the cells that make insulin, you know, start to, to poop out, the beta cells that, that, that make the insulin. So this happens progressively over time. But what do you tell people, Steve, when they say, okay, like at diagnosis, how much, you know, beta cells do they have? How much are they losing? All that. Yeah, well, you know, typically if people are diagnosed fairly early, but we know that you can have pretty high blood sugars and no symptoms for years before you're officially diagnosed. You know, I typically tell them that, you know, we're going to try treating you with some of the oral medications first. People do not like injections, but they, they learn to love them when they when they get the, the good medications. And I tell them that your therapy may change over time mm -hmm. because, um, you know, the best way to explain it is that the beta cell slowly right. loses its ability. And so people think that if they need more medication, they're failing. Their diabetes is worse. But it's it's the it's the rule rather than the exception yeah. that we add medications and that's over so time. Important, you know, because people throw around numbers like when you're diagnosed, you have fifty percent of your beta cells that are already kaput, and over time that gets lower. So you're kind of set up to fail. And people say, "Well, gosh, I keep I used to be able to control my diabetes with just diet and exercise, and then I needed metformin. And now I need this. Now I need this. I must be doing horrible." But no, there is unfortunately a progressive loss of the cells that make insulin. So you have to augment that with with other medications, or and or you know significant weight loss, which also helps a lot. Yeah, well, we can talk about the the older mm -hmm. uh, medications. How do you replace lack of insulin? You give insulin, but we also have these medications called sulfonylureas, glipizide, gliburide, and um, they've fallen out of favor, but they're still valuable and they're pennies a pill. Mm -hmm. So they're used worldwide, and that's what. That's basically the only substitute for lack of insulin. And these sulfonylurea pills, 
let's say glucotrol, they stimulate the pancreas to secrete insulin. But uh, the longer you have type 2, the less effective they are. So if your beta cells are burnt out completely, uh, it won't help. Right. Uh, and that's why they don't, they definitely don't help people with type 1 diabetes because our, you and I, our pancreas don't secrete it, you know, any insulin at all. Yeah. And, you know, so this is really where we were up until the 1990s or so. You know, we had, okay, you don't make enough insulin. We can give people insulin or we can give them these pills that aren't that great, you know, sulfonylureas. And people have insulin resistance, you know, we would treat that with metformin, which we still use. It's a very good drug. But that's really all we had, pretty much. Um, and that has changed, you know, somewhat, you know, dramatically, I would say, in, in, in recent history. So I think it's, it's time to pause right here because you say, gosh, you know, if maybe if you're listening and you have, you know, type 2 diabetes, I have these genes that are messed up, you know, I have all these abnormalities with insulin resistance and my, my, my beta cells aren't making enough insulin and, oh yeah, my cholesterol's messed up and maybe I'm overweight and my heart I'm worried about, you know, it's scary. That can be a lot and you feel like, you know, maybe you don't have the power to kind of fight back. But the good news is, What's the good news? The good news is that these conditions are treatable. Yeah. And as you just alluded to, over the past decade, we have now several super impressive medications that not only help lower the glucose, but they lower the weight and protect the heart, as we've talked about in our on our other shows. I, I want to say one more thing about weight, that many type 2s uh, are so frustrated because it's so easy to gain, mm -hmm. so tough to lose, and uh, their relatives blame them for eating themselves into getting diabetes. But this, this obesity that's affiliated with type 2, it's in the genes. You're destined to be heavy. So, you know, I always tell people, you know, do the best you can not to gain any more weight as a starter and get start exercising. Uh, and it's much better to be a healthy, in-shape person than a skinny person that doesn't do anything. So, you know, it's it's a very frustrating because, you know, the clothes doesn't fit. You know, it, they they feel like they can never lose weight. Yeah. And it's, it's tough. And we kind of allude to that, that it makes diabetes and metabolic syndrome a, a polypharmacy condition. Yep. You know, you've got medicines for cholesterol. These are all very important things. Cholesterol, blood pressure, maybe, you know, things for your weight, things for your diabetes, because these all go together. So when we, it kind of echoes back to our initial di our definition of diabetes, that focusing on hyperglycemia is too simplistic. Yes, you have to control the blood sugars, but you have to address all these things together. And we have some medications that can help. So I think we're going to kind of pivot now to talk about two newish, newer, I don't know, in the last decade or so, um, classes of medication that have really been revolutionary. And that's maybe a dramatic word, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, this is a complete renaissance of the way that we treat diabetes because these medications um, improve blood sugars, reduce weight, improve cardiovascular risk and, and kidney risk. So we'll go through two of these. So could I, could I just interject Absolutely. one thing quickly? Um, you know, you talked about these pretty uh, important uh, metabolic syndrome abnormalities to treat, blood pressure, cholesterol, glucose. And when you have type 2 diabetes, um, the, if you have high glucose, they don't, they don't cause too many symptoms. When, you ha when your blood pressure is high, there are no symptoms. You know, unless it's really high, you get a nosebleed. But short of that, you can have pretty high blood pressure and not know it. Mm -hmm. And lastly... You could have high LDL cholesterol, the, the type of cholesterol that causes heart attacks, and 
you could be through the roof. It doesn't cause any symptoms mm-hmm. until maybe your first heart attack. And I think that's where people talk about type twos. They're they're not as adherent with their medications. And as Bill Polonsky would say, there's no sense of urgency. So I always say it's harder to be a type two. Uh, you you don't have uh, any you know symptoms that would say I got to take my medication. Right. So. As a person with type 2 listening, you got to have faith in the fact that treating these abnormalities is going to help you live a long and healthy life. And even if you miss them, you may not feel any different. It's important to be yeah. fairly regular. That's so important. I mean, you have to buy in and um, so that you have to treat this chronically and it'll pay off. But trust us, it absolutely will. Um, okay. So the first one we're going to talk about is, it's, it's, get ready for this, a hormone called GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1. You don't have to remember that. There will not be a test. Um, but what is this? So this is actually a normal, or uh, it's a hormone that the body makes, just like insulin, but it's not insulin, but it's a hormone. And it's actually released by the some cells in the intestines uh, when people eat, when anybody eats, Eric without diabetes is sitting next to me. You know, when he eats, one. my GLP one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's true. Um, so when you anybody eats, uh, this this hormone GLP one is secreted. And what does it do? Well, it does a couple important things. First of all, it actually goes right to the beta cell and tells it, "Hey, we're eating. Produce more insulin." So it, it augments insulin secretion. It actually shuts down glucagon production. Glucagon is something that raises your blood sugar. So it's a way of saying, hey, we're eating. We need more insulin, less glucagon. And and glucagon is abnormally high in people with type 2 mm-hmm. diabetes after eating. Yeah. So it, it does direct a very important uh, mechanism. And it slows down gastric emptying. What does that mean? That's the speed that the stomach is kind of pushing food through. Um, so it's just a way of saying, hey, you know, slow down. Let's let's slow down the absorption of nutrients, and it, that's important because if the stomach is just kind of pushing through nutrients quickly, you can get a big spike in your blood sugar as you absorb it all at once. And this kind of gives it literally more of a slow roll and kind of you know spreads out the the speed in which you're you know absorbing things. That's a great way to explain it. But I I, I would just add to that that. I like to use the word, it normalizes gastric emptying. Because if you take people with type 2 first diagnosed, their stomach motility is faster than normal. So, you know, because it sounds like you're you're making someone have gastroparesis, you're not. And, you know, it's important that you you mention these things because you just said glucagon's high and type 2s and gastric emptying's messed up. I mean, add it to the list. Yeah. So you can see, like, why type 2 diabetes is so complicated because there's all these different metabolic abnormalities that center around insulin resistance and insulin, but it, it kind of spills over into everything. Yep. Um, so it normalizes. I think that is a much better word to use because it's true, gastric emptying. And the last thing is it increases satiety, a.k.a. it makes you feel full. So I put all this together, and it's a hormone that's released when you're eating, and it just says, hey, we're eating. Maybe stop eating, you know, or maybe you don't need you know, as much food. Let the stomach kind of slow down. Let's get some more insulin, less glucagon. And this hormone does all these things. And what's nice about it is you don't have to like focus on eating less or thinking different. This GLP-1, they affect the satiety centers of the brain. And just to let the folks know, satiety is different than appetite. Appetite, just you're not hungry at all when you sit down to a meal. But satiety is you start eating, you might be really hungry, but you just get full faster. Mm -hmm. And people use doggy bags at restaurants more. And in every single study with every GLP-1 out there, there's like six of them now, people lose a statistically significant amount of weight. Mm -hmm. And weight loss is so important to treat type 2. 
And then, so with this hormone, we basically found that it was messed up in people with type two. They didn't respond to it as much, so it becomes a you know a therapeutic area for um, intervention. And it kind of has a cool story since we're talking about the science of how it was discovered. Yeah. Um, there's this little lizard, kind of a cute guy. It's yeah, a, poisonous. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's spelled G I L A monster. You say Gila or Gila? I've heard it. G is the H. If you're cool. Okay, Gila. Gila, Gila monster. monster. It's kind of like the the southwest United States. And this guy produces a venom that they found when it would bite other animals, their pancreases would get bigger, that would somehow kind of augment insulin secretion. And this lizard can also go long periods without you know, eating and have normal blood sugar. So long story short, that they found that the, the venom of this little lizard had, you know, yeah, venom saliva. Um, <laughs> it sounds more like intense when you say venom. I mean, it is. It, I mean, when they bite you, like you would throw up and have all these like, you know, bad reactions. Anyways, this venom, cooler word, had essentially a GLP-1 in it. And so that was how it was discovered. And, you know, chemists got a hold of it and modified it. And now we have multiple medications. And the first one was improved and get this 2005. So we've had it for almost 20 years now. The first one was called Bietta. And over the, you know, subsequent 20 years, the formulations have gotten better. So Bietta was actually going to take it twice a day. Um, and now we have multiple options to take it once a week. We have, um, we have Ozempic, we have Manjaro, we have Trulicity. Um, and these are fantastic medications because they do so many things. And I kind of had this timeline because I think it's interesting that it was first approved in 2005. We knew it helped blood sugars, lower A1C 1% or so, and help people lose weight. And then 2014, it was actually the first one was approved officially for weight loss whether you had type 2 diabetes or not. And then in 2017, they actually got indications for reducing cardiovascular disease. And I'm just mentioning this because I think it's so cool that it started literally with this lizard. And then we found out that it can, you know, help people with diabetes, their blood sugars. And oh yeah, by the way, it can help people with obesity. And oh, by the way, it can help people with cardiovascular disease. I mean, what a huge deal. You know what? This, uh, when you say it has the indication to reduce heart disease, that is, it doesn't give it, true credit when you say indication i mean these companies all of them have done these what we call cardiovascular outcome trials they've used these drugs in thousands of people versus placebo and they just look at the incidence of heart attacks and strokes basically and every single study is markedly positive so the cardiologists now are using these drugs and it's probably one of the it's it's the drug that put us in contact and created more communication between endocrinologists diabetes specialists and cardiologists it's made a huge impact mm -hmm. and then of course weight we just talked about how difficult weight is right. and that's why there's a shortage of some of these right now yeah. on the market because all these uh, centers and movie stars are touting great weight loss by taking these drugs and not enough for people with type 2 diabetes but they're they're catching up so to throw it back real quick to you know how it works well guess what these GLP-1s augment insulin secretion so that helps with we were talking all the time about how type 2s have diminished insulin secretion. So it helps with that. And when people lose weight, they tend to become more insulin sensitive. So it addresses the insulin resistance part too. And this can be helpful if you're like, what is my Trulicity doing? Or my Ozempic? Why should I take this every week? Well, it's really literally fighting kind of the two core defects that people have in, in type 2 diabetes. And when you lose weight, what happens to your blood pressure? Goes down. Mm -hmm. What happens to your cholesterol levels? They improve. So, you know, it also has a tremendous effect on the emotional totally. uh, state of people with type 2. They start to lose weight. I, call, I, I created a word, I don't think it was exactly correct, called reverse catch-22, that 
they lose weight, they feel better, they go to the gym, they buy new clothes. I had a woman who dumped her husband. She got a new husband. She's still with him. <laughs> and she she dyed her hair blonde. She is the happiest person on this <laughs> earth. But by going on a GLP-1, GLP-1 drug changed her life emotionally, physically, uh, all the way around. It's, it's so true. I mean, I have family members now that I've had on it, multiple patients, obviously. It can be a game changer. So let's talk somewhat quickly about the next big class. Um, and it's called, here's another alphabet soup. Say it slow. SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, sodium, sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitors. Again, you don't have to remember this. But the way that these drugs work, it's a little bit simpler to explain, is that normally our, our kidneys are you know, filtering glucose and, and holding on to all the glucose that's in our body. And if everything's going well, you actually don't pee out any sugar. Now, these drugs actually block the kidney's ability to absorb glucose to intentionally make you pee out sugar. So guess what? When you pee out sugar, you have less in your bloodstream. That means your blood sugars are lower. But we're learning again that it's having all these different effects. So these are drugs like? Well, Jardiance uh -huh. and Farziga. But let me just add, Jeremy, that was a great explanation. But this is another defect. It's, it's not like they just took this medication and say, we, we want the kidneys right. to push out the glucose. We know that in normal individuals, once the glucose gets to 90, the kidneys push out glucose in, into the urine. Um, but since people, normal people never get that high, they hardly ever see sugar in the urine. But if you have type 2 and your blood sugar is as high as 200, you don't see any sugar. You, the, the sugar goes in your urine, but many much of that is still in the blood. Mm -hmm. So this medication pushes as much sugar as it can at a much lower set point. That might be a little too complicated. No, but, but I think that's a really important mindset. It's a defect. Again, it's that, not yeah, just a drug. Correcting something that is abnormal. Yes. We're trying to normalize that, you know, in physiology. This is, you know, about the science of type two. Here's some things that go wrong, and we're using these medications to correct it. Yeah, and talk about the other tremendous benefits it has. Oh, my God. This drug probably... It has just as much as GLP-1 has changed the way we treat heart disease, kidney disease, and diabetes. Yeah. And so first of all, real quick, these are once-a-day pills. The GLP-1s are usually once-a-week injections. And very little side effects. Yeah. And so the first SGLT2, Steve always gives me a hard time for saying it too fast, <laughs> uh, was improved in 2013 for diabetes. Um, actually, Invokana was the first. And it reduces A1C by you know half a percent or so. And then in 2016, we found that it reduces cardiovascular disease risk in people with diabetes. In 2021, reduces the risk of chronic kidney disease in people with diabetes. And then 2022, just last year, reduces the risk of heart failure um, or, or symptoms of heart failure in everybody, whether you have diabetes or not. And I think this is a really interesting story because... When it first came out, people said, I'm peeing out more sugar. That's going to hurt my kidneys, right? That can't be good. Yeah. And now we're finding that not only does it not hurt them, it actually is protective. People lose weight, reduce cardiovascular risk. I mean, it's been a, a huge um, advance in, in public health, not just diabetes. Yeah, and it's just amazing that there's the formal indication that this drug is for, is for people with and without type 2 diabetes. Now, if you have type 1 and chronic kidney disease like I have, uh, I, I don't have, I fit in that category. I don't have type two. <laughs> and uh, my kidney doctor is uh, up on things and I take Farziga mm -hmm. once a day and it's used in anybody with chronic kidney disease. So 
Uh, and then I should just mention that uh, congestive heart failure is one of the most common things people with type 2 diabetes have. And that's when your heart's not strong enough to pump blood throughout your body and you start retaining fluid. And uh, once you have one episode of congestive heart failure, you know, it's, it's a serious thing. Mm -hmm. So this prevents future episodes. So it's, it's a tremendous class of drugs. And I just want to say one thing as we get close to the end, Jeremy, that uh, wasn't in one of our bullet points is that you know, you hear uh, naysayers out in the world that drug companies, uh, they don't want to come up with a cure for type 2 uh, because they want to just continue to make these drugs and make money. And uh, I, I vehemently disagree with that. And as we talked about, we don't even know the cause of type 2. And it's not just drug company scientists working on finding the cause. It's researchers at UCSD around the world. And... Uh, I say thank God that they discovered these abnormalities and then developed a therapy to improve them. And that's why a typical person with type 2 might be on two or three medications uh, hitting each one of these defects you and I spoke about to get to goal. Right. And it's much better to have a good A1C and be on five drugs than to have an A1C of 10%. And to go around bragging that you don't take any medications. Yeah, and you've heard me say this a million times. I'm, as somebody with type 1, literally jealous that, you know, these medications aren't approved for type 1 yet. I think another way of saying that is if you have type 2, there's a real opportunity here with these medications to change your life. A million, um, million and one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think kind of concluding, you can see how far we've come in last 10, you know, 20 years, moving from just insulin and sulfonylureas, things that made people gain weight, had all kinds of issues with the hypoglycemia, to now some of these medications that can, you know, reduce weight. We've kind of you know, beaten that to death a little bit. Um, but what a change. And I think with that comes, you know, more hope when you talk about diabetes, for sure. Um, less, you know, doom and gloom. I think the, the needle is changing of people's perception about this. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, my concluding statement is um, that now research shows that if you have type 2 and you take care of all these abnormalities that are associated with type 2, you could live just as long as anybody else without diabetes and even longer. Because think about it. Let's say you're someone who has high blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol, you don't have any symptoms, you don't have diabetes, and so you just go along being overweight. But then if you have type 2, you're diagnosed, and your caregiver, hopefully your doctor says, hey, let's let's start exercising, let's follow a good diet, let's get that blood pressure and cholesterol down. Things, abnormalities that you weren't even cognizant that you had, you definitely can live a much longer life. I've seen that. As long as when someone with type 2 really takes hold and gets interested in their condition, they do extremely well. All right. Well, I think that says it all. This has been a good podcast. I hope you enjoyed our, our talk on the science of type 2 and keep following us for uh, our next podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. All right. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> See you later.